Good morning once again. If you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We'll be picking up in verse 18 through 21. And verse 21 is the last verse uh, of this letter that John wrote. And, and so I think that there's some importance here that John ha- has taught them all these things, these, these Christians whom he loves, who he thinks of as his dear little children as a father. He's taught them, reminded them the truths of Christ Jesus and salvation in him. He's taught them the blessings of salvation, and he's given them the tests of salvation that they might know that they have eternal life. So we we come now to these parting words, the last things he will say in this letter. So, and and it's the last thing he'll be saying to us, you know, in this letter. This is a a message that was for these people back then, and it's a message for us now. So again, turn your Bibles to 1 John 5, and we'll be looking at verse 18 through 21. It says there, I should have this in, in PowerPoint, I don't know. Anyway. All right, well, let's, let's read it together. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father God, would you give us eyes to see wondrous things in your word? Would you give us ears that are sensitive to what you have to say to us and hearts that are receptive? Let us be comforted by your word today and challenged by your word today, God. And lead us in the way everlasting, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a war going on. I remember uh, like when 9-11 happened, and I remember going to a prayer meeting, and, and all of a sudden we find out we're, we're, we're waging war. And I remember being super nervous about that as a kid. There's a war going on, like I'm in a war now. Well, you need to understand there is a war going on that is not primarily national or political or economic or anything like that. This war of all wars is spiritual. And some of us might breathe a sigh of relief. Oh good, it's only spiritual, so there won't be bombs and guns and things like that. This is actually more important, more terrifying that this spiritual war is going on. Because while physical war might take your freedom, it might take your life even, spiritual war can take your soul condemnation, eternal wrath. As John comes to the end of this letter, 
he, he, he's been talking to these Christians who are engaged in this war. And I think the whole purpose for this letter is the fact that they were struggling in this spiritual war. They'd had enemies, uh, the, these ones who were false teachers, antichrist, he even calls them, who, who were trying to deceive them. And so again, he's been teaching them, reminding them, here are the truths of Christ. Here are the blessings of being truly in Christ. And here are the tests that you can you know, put upon yourself to know whether or not you're in Christ. And so there, there, there's some resolution there. Okay, I, I see the truth about Jesus. I, I see the blessings of knowing Jesus. And I know that I am in him. But John is, is still going to show us some things that they need to know in order to continue on in this war. And, and we are still in this very same war today. Like it or not, no one is exempt from this war. No one's sitting on the sidelines. There are no neutral parties in this war. And you will either have victory or defeat. So John is going to give us what, what I'm calling today a battle plan. Uh, Pastor Dave reminded me, that's not technically a battle plan, <laughs> the things that you're going to list here. But, you know, this is what I'm calling a battle analysis, a battle plan. And I think in any battle plan, got to get here where we're going, you need to know your enemies. You need to know who your enemies are. Okay, I'm in a war. Well, who am I fighting against? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? I think you need to know who your allies are. Who is it that is fighting alongside me in this battle? And then you need to know your personal responsibility in the war. This is, uh, again, what I'm calling a, a battle plan, a battle analysis, because you do not want to go into a war without counting the cost. Even Jesus talked about that. Like you, you look at the enemy, you look at yourself, what you have going for you, and say, can I even win this war? And so today we're going to look at what, what John has for us, these parting words. Here's what you guys need to continue in this war. They will have a final day that John wrote about in Revelation, one of his uh, later letters. But until then, we will fight. So let's look at the first thing. Again, in this uh, battle analysis, John doesn't give these uh, in, in kind of like sequential order. Uh, so we're just going to pull them out of the text and, and, and look at them here. But the first thing we will learn is you are no match for your enemies. Again, I told you about, you know, being nervous as a kid with 9-11. Um, but there was still always within me this idea of like, yeah, but we're America. <laughs> We got this. Like, we're stronger than, than these little bands of terrorists. And, you know, I, I just had that mentality. Well, how much more scary is it to realize that you are no match for your enemies? Left to your own wisdom, your own strength, your own abilities, defeat is your only possible conclusion. Well, what are the enemies that John tells us about in the, these closing verses? He gives us in verse 21, the very last verse, idols. Keep yourself from idols. I put up there just kind of my own definition of, of idols is God replacements. Something that you worship other than God, higher than God in your heart. Those are enemies. And then also, 
John gives us the evil one, that's Satan. And he's mentioned in verse 18 and 19. And, and we'll, we'll see how those work in the flow of this battle plan in a moment. But first, we just need to think about who are these enemies? What is the, the nature of them and what makes them so much stronger than us? Let's look first at idolatry. I, by the way, would say that idolatry is, is the root. It is the core of all sin. Idolatry is exchanging God, the creator, for anything else, creation. God created us to, to trust him, to, to serve him, and to find our satisfaction in him. And idolatry is to say, you know what, I'm actually going to trust this thing rather than God. I'm going to serve this thing rather than God. And I'm going to find my satisfaction in this thing rather than God. And that is sin. I mean, that, that is sin to, to take our eyes off God who is worthy of all honor and all praise and all glory and to say, I'm going to give it to this thing, whether it be myself, whether it be my possessions, whether it be my comfort, whether it be anything else we can think of, pleasure. But I, I want to remind you, that I think it's kind of helpful to think about that uh, in this context, John was talking to people who very literally probably struggled with actual idol worship. And, and I want to mention this because we'll, we'll see the silliness of idol worship when we look at it uh, in the context <clears throat> that John was writing to. Back then, if you've read much of the Bible, you know that they were actual idols made of, of wood. And then oftentimes they were covered with precious metals, you know, uh, gold or silver. And these were idols that represented gods that they, that they believed in, that they believed could influence uh, their life by, by worshiping these gods. So if you wanted rain for your crops, you would worship the rain god. You'd make sacrifices to the rain god. If you wanted to have a child, you would worship the fertility god. If you wanted to have prosperity, you would mention or, uh, worship one of the many uh, gods they believed could deliver prosperity. And this was rampant in, the, in their day. And we, we in, in our uh, superiority, say, oh, cute people, they believed those idols could really do something for them. They believed those idols were worthy of their trust. They were, they were worthy of, of, of their satisfaction, that that was, is what would satisfy them. Silly. You need to understand that in our modern, sophisticated, technologically advanced society, idolatry has gotten worse, not better. Instead of bowing down to the rain God who can bring us crops and give us money, we bow down to our jobs. We serve our jobs. I'll do whatever it takes to make money. Yeah, I'll sacrifice my church. I'll sacrifice my family for my job so that I can have more money. And we're trusting in that job. We're, we're finding satisfaction in that job. We bow down to entertainment, to pleasure. I mean, they, they, they sacrifice. They literally would sacrifice things to these idols. But how much do we sacrifice to the gods of entertainment and pleasure and comfort and ease? 
We give our lives, our time, our money, our affections to these things, believing that they will be able to deliver the lives and the satisfaction we are looking for. The lives and the satisfaction that only God can give us. That is idolatry. It sounds silly to think of bowing down to this little statue and we say, but no, we, we do the very same things. We just don't have a statue to represent our gods. But these are heart idols, okay? There's, there's nothing to shoot at in this war. There's nothing to swing at in this war because it's right here inside of us. And this is, idol, idols control us. We, we just tend to find things to replace God. We, we tend to exchange God. And so in some ways, we're, we're just at the mercy of our own wicked hearts that would want to exchange God. And we're defenseless against them on our own. I should mention, by the way, I've got it here somewhere, this bottom verse, Revelation. This is Paul, or sorry, John, the author of this same letter at the end of the book of Revelation. He says, but as for the idolaters, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Remember I said that the stakes are higher in this than in physical war? If your enemy, idolatry, defeats you, the lake of fire, the second death, that is hell, it would be another word we have for it. That is, that is the outcome. But this situation only gets worse when we recognize our second enemy uh, that, that John talks about there. He says in verse uh, 19, let's see if I have that there, nope. Sorry. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I think I have it somewhere. Let me see here. No, no. There we go. Yes. I, I wanted you to be able to see it. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The, who's the evil one? Well, the evil one is the devil. It's, it's Satan, whatever you'd like to call him. And earlier in 1 John 3, 8, just a couple chapters back, he said, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So this is kind of his teaching on the devil so far. Sinning from the beginning. What is that talking about? Well, I believe it's pointing us back to Genesis chapter 3, where at the beginning, after Adam and Eve, you know, were in the garden where they were to worship, enjoy, honor, find their satisfaction in God, trust God, the evil one comes and he tempts them. And, I, and put on your thinking caps here. What did Satan tempt them to do? At, at its core, what did Satan tempt them to do? Did Satan say, bow down and worship me? No, he didn't say that. Did he say, curse God? No, he, he didn't say that. What Satan tempted them to do was commit idolatry. Satan took their eyes off of God and set it on this forbidden fruit in the benefits that fruit could bring them. Instead of trusting God, that God would supply all their needs, that God would give them everything good, that they should remain under God, they said, oh, this fruit is, is delightful to the eyes. It's good for food, and you will be like God. Satan didn't need them to bow down to him to have the victory. He simply needed to push them, to tempt them into idolatry. 
to worshiping, to seeking, to pursuing, finding their satisfaction in something other than God. And again, you look at verse 19 on the, the top there. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What this means is this whole world system that Satan has, has built uh, around us, he is leveraging to, to push us into idolatry, to tempt us into idolatry. Literally, every aspect and sphere of human life, Satan tries to leverage for his purposes, to, to make us forget about, to worship things other than God. I mean, you can th just think about it. You think about entertainment, media, advertisements, job cultures, school curriculums, social philosophies, and, and every religion that does not trust in Christ Jesus as their Savior. All of these are being leveraged to make us forget about the one true God. So let's, let's think about this. Our enemies, right? We have heart idols that, that have entranced us and enslaved us to seek things that are not God. And then we have Satan, the evil one, ruling this world to, to leverage and push us away from God and into idolatry. So on your own, on my own, fighting with my own power, defeat is the only possible outcome. Now, that's not the end of the battle plan. If that were, you know, that my sermon would say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and, you know, things are bad. But that's not where John ends, because this is a message of hope. This is a message of confidence for his people. He's leaving, this is what they need, the, the drumbeat for, for their lives as they continue on. So let's look at number two. Your enemies are no match for God. You're no match for your enemies, but this is our ally, God, and your enemies are no match for God. I see this uh, just all through verses 18 to 20 that, that, we, that we've been uh, that we looked at there at the beginning, 18 through 20, they are showing us how God, our ally, will make us victorious if we've trusted in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Let's look at these uh, for a moment. In verse 18, I'm, I'm going to hit the, the highlights here. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. I should mention that he who was born of God is, is talking of, of Jesus, uh, pr protects him. So everyone, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So again, hitting the highlights here, you have been born of God. If you've trusted in, in Jesus, this is something that God, your ally, has done for you. To summarize what this means is we were, we were born physically sinners. We were born with our hearts clinging to idols, only able to commit idolatry. But when we, when we are born from God, he, he releases us from that enslavement, that, that, that sinful heart. 
He gives us new desires in our heart to, to seek after him, to pursue him, to find our satisfaction in him. This is what being born of God does. It is an act of God changing us fundamentally in our nature. We have a new nature in Christ Jesus. But not only that, we see there that Jesus protects you from Satan's grasp. I, I love this. Um, it says there, that, and the evil one does not touch him. That word touch, does not touch him, is the same thing that Jesus said to Mary in the garden when he said, do not cling to me. He's like, I've, I've got to go. I, I've got to ascend back to the Father. Mary, don't cling to me. And that's the same thing this is saying. Satan, he may be able to afflict you. He may be able to tempt you. He may be able to say, here are these, these lovely idols. Here are these lovely God replacements. He may be able to say that, but he will not ultimately be able to grasp you. Satan may win the occasional battle for your heart, but he will not win the war. If you have been born of God, Jesus is protecting you. He will not let you out of his hand. This is a, a wonderful truth, a, a confidence-inspiring truth that I've been born of God. I've got new desires that I don't have to be enslaved to idolatry, and Jesus will protect me. We see these things, by the way, in, in 1 John uh, 3, 9. No, not it. Whoop. I just shouldn't even use the PowerPoint. <laughs> I don't know where I am anymore. I can't see. All right. You've been born of God. Jesus protects you. Verse 19, uh, John goes to add even more weapons in the allies' arsenal. Verse 19, he says this, We know we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So that first one had a we know that whoever is born of God doesn't keep sinning and is protected. And now we have we know we are from God. God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is a contrast. The whole world, people who have not trusted in Jesus, they lie in the power of the evil one. They are a part of his kingdom, following him as king, whether or not they realize it. But we are from God. If you've been born of God, you are from God. And the, just the way I word this is, you have been made <clears throat> the citizen of a new kingdom with a new king. God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness, that's Satan's realm, into the kingdom of his beloved son. <laughs> this, is, this is awesome. This is beautiful. We, we no longer our citizens, I mean, you just think about what, what, a, what a citizen, a, a subject of a kingdom does. We don't feel this too much in America, but in, in the kingdoms back then, it was very much this way. If you were a citizen or a subject of a kingdom, you served your kingdom. You did what was best for your kingdom. We have a very individualistic mindset these days, but that was not the way it was back then. You served your kingdom in subjection to your king. That's what you did if you were in a kingdom. But now, we are no longer in the power of the evil one. We've been transferred to a new kingdom with a new king. I love uh, how 
uh, he, John said it a few verses back in verse 4, 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What do you mean overcomes the world? Well, earlier he had said in chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Lovers of the world are, are from, from Satan's kingdom, that, 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 that kingdom of darkness. But we have been transferred. We have, we're citizens of a new kingdom with a new and glorious king. And as if that weren't enough, uh, verse 20 is going to seal the deal on, the, on this powerful work God does for us as our ally. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. The, the important thing you need to understand here is I, I put it in yellow in the verse there, that word true, that we may know him who is true. This isn't talking about true versus falsehood or telling lies. This is true versus the fake. This is true versus the cheap imitation. This is the real thing, that we may know him who is the real thing, the real treasure. God created this world for him to be our treasure. He is the real thing. But in idolatry, we chase after cheap imitations. We're deceived into believing they will satisfy I love how C.S. Lewis put this um, in, in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We think our idols are pleasing us, but they're making mud pies in a slum when God offers us a beach vacation where we could be building huge sandcastles. I mean, it's, it's a, a vivid illustration, but it, it even pales in comparison. These cheap imitations, idols, we're, we're chasing after them. We think they're great and we believe it until, until, look at, look at the verse again, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know. That's that experiential word for know, by the way. That we may know him who is true. So God gives us a new heart that isn't enslaved to idolatry. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And then he gives us himself. He gives us the real thing. He gives us true satisfaction in him. All these things, by the way, we taste, but, but just a sliver now. And we, we will taste it in full forever. But even that little taste changes everything. I, I don't know how, how you process these things, but I, I think um, if you have a pack of Nabisco Oreos in your cart, your shopping cart, and you've secretly been snacking on them before checking out, 
you're not nearly as tempted to grab the store brand vanilla wafers. They're stale. They, they don't really say, sure, there's sugar in them, but they're just cheap imitations. You've got the real thing. You've got Nabisco Oreos. Or maybe if you have a wallet full of cash, you're not going to be nearly as tempted to stuff a bunch of Monopoly money in your pocket at game night. Someone's like, they open a Monopoly next time. Where'd all the money go? We've got to stop inviting Jeff. You're not tempted to chase after, not nearly as tempted to chase after the cheap imitation once you have the real thing. And I would say that, that's, that's just the, the main punch here. God has given you the real thing. The Son of God has come and given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And he goes on to say, and we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You have been given the true treasure. We still be tempted to chase after idols? Yeah, you'll be tempted, but you always have this resource of saying, no, I, I know what the real thing is like. I know what the real thing to trust in that is firm foundation. I, I know what the real thing is that, that, that satisfies me. I know the thing that is worthy of my honor and worthy of my praise and glory. The, the, the fake loses its allure once we've had the true. This is how God, our ally, takes people like you and me, who are otherwise defenseless against idolatry and against Satan, and he makes us victors. This is beautiful. Again, this is why John could say earlier in chapter 213, you have overcome the evil one. Not my strength, but, but Christ's strength. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, this idolatrous world that was 5-4. Why? Because we've tasted the real thing. We have the true treasure. This is a beautiful thing to see God as our ally. And if he is not your ally, the war is hopeless for you. Defeat is your only conclusion, only possible conclusion. Well, we've looked at our enemies We've looked at our, our much greater ally, but now we must turn, turn to our own personal responsibility. You must fight alongside God. You must fight alongside God. We see that in verse 21. This is the last verse of this book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I mean, this is kind of interesting. It, it doesn't flow with the rest of what John was saying almost. Because so far he's been listing what, what God is doing, what God is doing in you, what God is doing for you to give the victory. And then he comes to the end and says, you, you Christian, you fellow warrior, keep yourselves from idols. You say, well, which is it? Is God fighting for me or am I the one fighting? The answer is yes. God is supernaturally and overwhelmingly fighting for you, but God will not fight without you. We must also get our hands dirty. We also have to be in the fight. I love how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God 
who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So yes, we are absolutely 100% commanded to fight. If we do not fight, we will lose. But if you are born of God, you will fight and you will win because God is fighting for you. God is fighting in you, through you, empowering you to fight Satan, to fight idolatry. But we must fight. I challenge you, are, are you, are you getting your hands dirty? Are, are, are you leaving the, the, the foxhole and getting out into the fight? What's that look like? It looks like rooting out the idols in our lives, saying, what is it? That's taking my attention from God. What is it that has my affection rather than God? I did this test on myself um, <laughs> kind of over the course of the week. but And I thought, okay, what is it that makes my heart kind of leap? What is that for you? Is it, is it football? Is it fashion? Is it money? Is it possessions? Is it your job? What is it that when you think about it, you say, oh, yes. That should be God. I mean, God has created these things and given us these things as, as gifts to enjoy. But at some point, we got to be very careful about when they take our heart, when they take our time, they take our attention, they take our resources. At some point, they have become a cheap imitation for the God we should really be trusting in, really finding our satisfaction in. Again, this is a lifelong process. You will not be out of this war until the day that you die. You say, well, that sounds hard, always rooting out idols. But God is fighting for you. He's fighting with you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. <laughs> Choose him over idols and you will not be disappointed. The fight is hard, but the fight is glorious. This is how John wants these people, these dear little children, he calls them, to move forward in life. Your enemy is ferocious, but your God is more ferocious. Fight with him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for revealing these things to us.